went to the doctor, uh, 21, found myself in my little my GP's rooms, pulled the ducks down, had a feel around, said, mate, there's a bit of a lump there, probably nothing, send you off for an ultrasound, which he did. Um, got the results back that, that afternoon. Uh, he called me into his uh, rooms again, uh, and that's when he, um, he basically just said it. He said, mate, um, the, uh, the ultrasound results came back um, and uh, you've got testicular cancer. Um, which came at a, a bit of a shock because, uh, yeah, like I said, I was pretty fit, healthy, no pain, nothing at all, and here I am being told I had testicular cancer. Hello and welcome to Asking for a Mate, the feel-good podcast that asks guys to go beyond the small talk. This is a podcast that celebrates guys talking frankly and freely about subjects they wouldn't usually talk about. I'm your host, Cecile, and each episode, I get the chance to ask Aussie guys what's really going on beneath their thick skin, in the hope that it will inspire others to do the same. This week, we are celebrating Men's Health Week, and for this special episode, we've got a very special guest, Hugo Tuvi. I'm going to try and summarize Hugo in a few words, but guys, let me tell you, the list of his achievements is pretty damn long. Hugo is a captain in the Australian Army, the founder of 25 Stay Alive, the host of a podcast called Behind the Uniform, and the ambassador for Movember and the Jodie Lee Foundation. But most importantly, Hugo is only 29. At 21, Hugo's life changed drastically because he delayed going to the doctors for a few months. Since then, Hugo wants to raise awareness to others that they are not invincible in their 20s and 30s. I would like to let Hugo tell his story in his own words. But before we do, I want to warn you that Hugo's story is humbling, inspiring, yet in parts emotionally charged. I'm honored to be recording this episode with him and help raise awareness about Men's Health Week. Hugo, welcome to Asking for a Mate. Thanks for having me, Cece. It's a privilege to be here. I don't know if I'm a special guest, but um, I loved the intro. And uh, no, thank you so much for having me on today. So I was 21. I was uh, final six months left of four years of military training. So I'm a yeah, captain in the army. I've been in the army now for 11 years. Um, and at that stage, you know, I was on the home stretch. I had six months left. I was fit, healthy, and um, it was the 18th of June. And I always remember that day very well because it's my dad's birthday. So it's um, from when this was released, it's, it's, it'll be around that date actually. So it's um, very, uh, I guess, relevant, this, uh, this particular episode, because it is around that initial date of, of when I first called my dad. Um, and in that particular phone call, I said, um, you know, happy birthday, dad, bit of small chat. And then on a completely unrelated side note, I said, uh, look, dad, I've got this lump on my right testicle. Um, you know, what, what do you think I should do? And um, he sort of said, well, how long has it been there for? Um, and I, don't, I never know the exact time because it's hard to know, but I often say it's, it, was, it was well over six months. Um, from when I first noticed that lump from when I had that phone call with my dad. And um, he said, well, mate, why don't you just go off and get it looked at from your doctor, um, which seemed pretty obvious. Um, and even looking back now, it, you know, I always look back at that moment and think, you know, why, what stopped me? You know, why, why didn't I go in uh, to see that doctor? So I did, went to the doctor, 
uh, 21, found myself in my little my GP's rooms, pulled the ducks down, had a feel around, said, mate, there's a bit of a lump there, probably nothing, send you off for an ultrasound, which he did. Um, got the results back that, that afternoon. Uh, he called me into his uh, rooms again, uh, and that's when he, um, he basically just said it. He said, mate, um, the, uh, the ultrasound results came back um, and uh, you've got testicular cancer, um, which came at a, a bit of a shock because, uh, yeah, like I said, I was pretty fit, healthy, no pain, nothing at all, and here I am being told I had testicular cancer. All right, out. Okay. Um, so you said that when you when you first felt it, you kind of like put, like left it off and you were like, nah. Do you remember why you left it off for so long? Yeah. Look, it, it is a hard one because even having this chat with you, I remember the days of knowing it was there and often like after the shower or whatever, like it would be more noticeable. Mm. And, you know, young 21-year-old bloke, you know, you, you know it's there. Yeah. Um, I don't know why being a young 21-year-old bloke has to make <laughs> that any more prevalent than being any age, but you know what I'm trying to get at. It, it, it was there. Exactly. Usually quite active at this age. Yes, yes. That was what I was trying to beat around the bush yes. by saying. Great. I was, well, you can say it. It's the same space. Same space. Good. I was a single bloke. I knew it was there. Um, anyway, it was it was a, a thing where I, th- I, th- I guess I just wanted to think that it was nothing, and I think a lot of young Aussie blokes especially have that and um, we chatted offline, the whole she'll be right attitude. And I, I, th- I guess I had that, mm. you know, and you, you got you to gotta realise too, I've been doing about three and a half years of pretty intense army training. Yeah. Um, I only had six months to go and I think deep down I didn't really want that to, to get in the way of it. So I guess I went on my laptop, went on Google and typed in lump on testicle and instead of seeing the the worst results that came up, mm. I'd, I'd find the one that would say, most likely benign cyst will go away on its own. So I'd see that and go, oh, that's obviously what I've got. It will go away on its own. One month goes by, another month goes by, another couple months and it's it's still there. The same thing, picture a little, um, if you're listening to this and you've got frozen peas in your freezer, mm. we often always have frozen peas that, we don't really use, but they're always there in the freezer. <laughs> yeah, why do we have this freaking peas? I don't know. They it's just, like spinach and corn as well. I don't know. Why? They just take up freezer space, right? And that uh, little frozen pea on your right testicle, uh, knew it was there, but it didn't hurt either. And I think that's the big one that I feel like if it was causing pain, yeah, you would go to the doctor. But because it wasn't painful, I kind of thought, well, why do I need to go to a doctor? Um, so I suppose that's why I put it off for as long as I did. Yeah. So why do you think that the fact of talking to your dad actually triggered you to release the thing that you probably hadn't said to anyone before, even to yourself? Well, that's probably exactly it. He was probably the first person, well, he was the first person I'd actually told that it almost was a bit uncomfortable. So I've got this lump on my testicle, dad, like, what do you mm. think? It's, but I don't know why it was uncomf- uncomfortable. It just was. So I, I think saying it out loud, saying it to my dad, then hearing his logic in saying why don't you go to a doctor like it's pretty obvious it kind of made me go actually he's probably onto something there it's probably should just go to a doctor so it's probably just that um yeah like you said telling someone and then having that almost answering my own thoughts for me in a way yeah he just makes it very logical like well that's what you need to do duh exactly but i would imagine that um that's probably because you need to hear it from someone else than yourself? Yeah. Do you think that's possible? I think so. I think so. In a way, that's probably 
why you go to a doctor, right? And the doctor tells you something, you know, mm. hearing it from not saying my dad's a doctor, but even just having that father figure or father, is, you know, in, in your life to say, mate, go to a doctor, mm. it, you kind of, you know, I have a lot of respect for my dad, for example. So it's kind of like when your dad's telling you to go to a doctor because you should because you've got this lump on your testicle, mm. it's kind of the, that little push that I needed that, uh, that it eventually did prompt me to go to the doctor. Yeah, no, completely. When you discovered that you had testicular cancer, how, like, what did you feel first? Well, it was an interesting moment. And as we'll find out through this podcast, uh, unfortunately, I've um, had some, some other uh, news to take in since that initial diagnosis, uh, which we'll talk about shortly. But um, that particular moment, I think because I was young and naive, and I still felt a sense of, you know, I'm, I'm bulletproof in a way. So even after being told I had cancer, I felt like I was still fine with it. And um, that's even before I knew that, you know, it's it's pretty curable. Um, that was even after I knew it had spread. Um, so it wasn't just contained to the testicle. It had spread right up to my sort of chest, lung area. So even though I knew all of that, I was still, I don't know, I don't know if I was being naive. I just had a sense of, you know, I'm going to get through it um, in a way. But to be honest with you, the hardest part back then was the fact that once I found out it spread and they said, look, we now have to um, have further treatment after the initial surgery to remove the testicle, the hard part then was not doing that for about three months because what that meant is I knew I had cancer through my body they said we can delay the chemotherapy so you can have it back in your hometown in Adelaide, but you can still graduate and continue the next three months of army training at no detriment to my health. So it was kind of like the cancer had already spread. Mm. It wasn't and waiting an extra three months wasn't going to be, you know, it wasn't going to be um, the difference if that makes sense. Yeah. So that was the uh, that was the difficult part because if you picture going out to bars with your mates or doing army field training or, you know, doing some assessments or mm. doing all of this stuff that I had to do and almost just kind of put the whole, I've got cancer through my body on the, on the back burner. I'll deal with that later. That was a difficult part. Cause in most cases it's like, you've got cancer. We need to act now. Let's go. But for this particular case, I didn't have to. And that was the, that, that was the hard part. I suppose when you'd some nights be sitting there going, like what if it's spreading more? Like is this bad? Am I doing the right thing here? I've got trust in the doctors, but you've got all these things going through your mind and you just have to kind of live a normal life, which is pretty hard to do when you've got cancer through your body. So that was the hard part through that initial testicular cancer journey. Did you tell your mates at the time? Uh, no, only a, only a handful of close friends because I didn't want that to, um, I guess, define my last few months of my army training. I didn't want that to define who I was as a person. I didn't want people to kind of go, oh, you know, there's, you know, there's Hugo. Oh, he, he's the one that's um, going through that cancer, etc. So, I think for me, I just wanted to still be normal, if that makes sense. So I kind of just told a few close friends, obviously family, um, but I never really shared my story like I do now yeah, until okay. kind of probably you know a, a good year or a couple of years later. Mm. So what happened then when you did you went back to Adelaide to get the chemo? Yes, so I graduated, which which was fantastic, but um, it was very much a bittersweet feeling because 
I remember um, having my twin brother, my family, this big ceremony, um, you know, officially a, a young lieutenant in the Australian Army. And then, you know, on one hand, all my mates are about to get posted all around Australia and embark on a long military career. We're having poured at the dinner, you know, fantastic evening. But then on the other hand, I knew that I was about to start chemotherapy. Um, and my start of my very short career would be put on pause. Mm. Um, and I commenced that chemotherapy only six days after I graduated. So you kind of, there's a photo of me and my, my whites and my sword and, you know, I'm fit and healthy on the outside, but you'd have no idea that I've got cancer riddled through my body. And then six days later, chemotherapy in the chair, commencing the toxic drug, hair starts to fall out and commence that whole journey over the next sort of three to four months. Wow. And so you had surgery. Did everything go according to plan? Yes. Yep. So before the chemo, the very first thing I did have um, was surgery to remove the uh, affected testicle. And yep. for anyone who's got suspected to have testicular cancer, the surgery to remove the testicle, they'll, everyone will have that. Um, so I had surgery to remove the affected. They, they did that straight away. That is one bit of treatment they did straight away. Uh, it was the chemo and follow-on yep. surgeries they put on hold. So, yep, had the surgery, opted for a fake testicle. Um, I love the part when you say that you had the meeting with a doctor and then he was kind of like asking for which size you want. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's pretty foreign. Um, you don't expect you're going to be – so this happened shortly after I was told I had testicular cancer, had the surgery to move the testicle. Um, and he kind of said, now, mate, you've got the option of a fake testicle. And I remember thinking, well, if defence is paying, why not? That sounds pretty good. And then um, – and I didn't realise there were different shapes and sizes. Um, so quite literally he walked me through some different sizes, shapes of fake testicles. I remember he would be like, this one's a silicon-based one. This one's, you know, imported from the States. It's quite popular. This one's my personal favourite. So I'm going around feeling them all, giving a bit of a squish, feeling, you know, what's what's better on the fingers – don't know why that's really relevant, but, you know, it was an important process. And then I um, he eventually said, what size do you want? And I said, uh, if you just match it up, I thought that was pretty obvious. So you have a bit of bit of symmetry. I didn't have a partner at the time, so I wanted to look a bit normal, um, you know, change rooms for footy or whatever, just look a bit normal. But he said it was uh, not uncommon for, for some guys to opt for a bigger fake testicle, <laughs> which uh, looking back on it, I think um, – my already infamous party trick would have probably been made even funnier if I had a fake testicle. So anyway. What is your infamous party trick? Um, well, it's called real or fake, basically. Okay. And I, you could probably figure out the rest, but basically what it involves is usually after a few dirty martinis um, for people to guess if I have the real or fake testicle out <laughs> um, and – it's harder than it looks. People think that's definitely a real one, and I say, nope, that's my fake one. And so anyway, after a few <laughs> few beers, I often, uh, often start doing that. But it's funny. I Yes, it gets some laughs. Um, yes, I usually do it when I've probably had a few too many drinks, but I think it also raises a bit of awareness. Because I was going to say, no, you're doing a great job at raising awareness in a fun way. In a fun way, exactly. And I've got, I've got plenty of guys after a night out in the morning going, geez, that was funny. I remember when you bloody got your fake nut out, real or fake, and then they said, um, you remember you were telling me how, how to fill your nuts though in the shower and you're kind of talking them through it the next day and you think, actually, that bloody uh, party trick 
potentially might save a life one day. So uh, there you go. There you go. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I will say it's a great party trick. So before we go further, just because you mentioned it, I was going to ask you, uh, for those guys listening, oh, I don't know, women wanted to do it. Mm. How do you check your nuts? What's the best process? Well, the best way to do it is after a shower or yeah, immediately after a shower with the steam, you know, the testicles are hanging a bit lower. It's the best way to have a bit of a feel around. Um, now, blokes, you know, we've all got we've all got nuts um, and it's just learning what your normal is. So if you kind of cup your testicles a bit, have a bit of a feel around the testicle and just kind of know what your shape is, what your normal is, and if anything kind of is a bit unusual, I, for me, that little frozen pee, you think, oh, hang on, that shouldn't probably be there or one's kind of a bit of pain or a bit enlarged or anything like that, that's usually a good prompter to go off to um, to a doctor. And for females, same same concept with breasts. You know, the similar thing applies, feeling around what your normal is. Uh, and that's the general message that I always say to people is, you know your body better than anyone. So if, you know, you're in the shower, you're looking at yourself in the mirror or your partner picks something up and you notice, hang on, that's not quite right, whatever that might be, lumps, bumps, rashes, um, usually it's a good indication to uh, pick the phone up and book in to see your doctor. Yeah, exactly. Or any pain, I would imagine. Pain, it could be also something un- unusual pain. Unusual and, pain. And I often say, and this isn't my advice, this has kind of come from a um, medical expert, they often say um, two weeks. So if you have something that's been there or going on for more than two weeks, that's usually an indication to go to a doctor. So what I mean by that is if your bowels are playing up for a couple of days, yeah. well, don't necessarily rush off to a doctor because it could be something you've eaten. It could be, you know, a few too many beers on the weekend. But if it's been going on for two weeks, mm-hmm. I a freckle that looks a bit odd or a rash or, like yeah. you said, a bit of pain, and you think, mm, hang on, yeah. uh, that's been there for a bit, that's usually the prompter to, to go to your doctor. Sounds like a good advice. Mm. It's funny because I was talking to a few different guys about like, you know, touching yourself and stuff and they were like, well, we've never been taught mm. how to do it. And because I've been researching it, I kind of almost not knew the answer, but I think really what you said is re- reinforcing what you just said is knowing what is normal. Mm-hmm. So it's not checking yourself to be like, can I feel something weird? No, it's learning what acting normal Correct. feels like. Yeah, Spot on because my testicles pre Testicular cancer are probably different to my twin brothers, to different to mates, to different to everyone else. We've all got our own unique parts in in our body. Um, so, yeah, spot on. Learn to know what your normal is. It's a pretty simple message. I can already imagine, like, female partner just now going home and just like, yeah. checking out. I need to know what normal is for you. <laughs> I need to remember. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> oh, no, just tell your guy to go in the shower and have a feel and remember. Yep, being Men's Health Week too. <laughs> Set yourself a challenge this way. Exactly. Exactly right. So to go back in a, in a less of a light topic, so you had chemotherapy. Were you faced with your own mortality at this rate, at this point? Look, I knew my odds were always very good. Um, and I hate when people say the better cancer because, look, it's it's not a great cancer. No cancer is a good cancer. I've know people who are unfortunately living with a terminal um, prognosis with a testicular cancer. So it's not a great cancer, but what I mean by that is as far as survival rates go, it is one of the better ones um, as, as, as far as long-term survival rates. So for me, I was always optimistic knowing that. Um, that being said, anytime you go through chemo, you can never guarantee it's going to do the job. So it wasn't until really after you have the follow-up scans that show that, yep, 
the chemo's done its job or that for me it was the follow-up surgery post the chemo that eventually showed that, yep, we can't see any more signs of cancer. Until you get that scan, mm-hmm. you're never completely confident that you're going to just be, oh, this will be completely fine. I'll be in the you know majority that, that survived this cancer because you just don't know. There's always... You know, there's always uh, statistics or outliers to say that not everyone does. So for me, it was getting that scan post the chemo, post the surgery. And once I got that, once I knew that there was no signs of cancer, that's when I could finally say, okay, now now I'm confident they've got it all. Now I can move on. Yeah. And so like we've with all of this happening, with all the surgeries and you were saying like your mates were away doing, like having the career that they've worked so freaking hard to get, how was your mental health during that process? Yeah, look, mental health I'm a big advocate for. Um, probably back then I was, I didn't know enough about it um, and I probably, to be honest, uh, brushed it under the carpet and I became very good at doing that over the next five years or so. I kind of just felt that I needed to be the optimistic, positive Hugo even through this whole journey. So I held on to that image even though behind that behind the mask, I was actually struggling. And that probably occurred well before I ever spoke about it, um, which was only really a couple of years ago. So I kind of got very good at masking that. Uh, but looking back on it and talking honestly now, absolutely I was um I was struggling with I guess the concept of of what I was going through at a young age and a vulnerable age. You know, I think in your early 20s as a a guy, that's when you're on the dating scene. That's when you're, you're out and about at pubs and parties and you're, you know, playing footy for your old school and doing all this stuff that as young Aussie guys, we, we all do. For me, that, you know, it was very different. I was lost all my hair. I was unwell. I was constantly in hospitals. I was on different medications, seeing different doctors on different diets, doing just living a very different life that I couldn't relate to anyone, if that makes sense. It's, it's not like it was, you know, back then it, I didn't really speak about it. So then I couldn't just pick the phone up and talk to a mate who was going through something similar. So I felt like I was definitely isolated during that whole, uh, yeah, whole journey. Yeah. Did you, did you have people surrounding you at the time? Yeah, I, I always had support and I'm always grateful for that. Um, you know, I didn't have a partner at the time during the um, testicular cancer days, but my family always been supportive. The army have always been supportive. So in a work setting, I was fine. Having support from family and friends, I was fine. Mm. But I felt like I just, they, I missed that, you know, I feel, like, I feel like they couldn't relate to what I was going through. And that's the difficult part because they, they couldn't, you know. So although they were supportive and they'd bring in, my dad would bring in his juices every morning and mates would come and say day, and, you know, this type of thing, I felt like I was still isolated in the fact that no one knew what I was going through because at the time I thought I was the only one in the world going through um, this cancer at a young age. Yeah. So what do you think would have helped at the time? Uh, definitely reaching out to people who are going through something similar or have gone through something similar. And that's why today when I get young guys who reach out to me who have gone through testicular cancer or have just been told they've got testicular cancer um, or any type of cancer at a young age, in their sort of twenties, and I get that pretty regularly. I love connecting and speaking to them, and I always, you know, give them my number and my time and chat to them because, to me, that's so important. And I look back at when I was in that vulnerable stage of not having that person to talk to. 
to me being that person on the other side to chat to this vulnerable young guy who's just been told he's got cancer, walk him through it, have a chat, hopefully we'll, we'll help him get through it. Yeah. Is that like must be quite intense for you to like almost feel like you have to talk to everyone and you have to be available for this guy? Like is that a bit of a drain sometimes on your on your life? And It, it can be because I can get quite invested in it. Um, so, you know, I, I like to give everyone the time. You know, they've opened up to me. And I've been through that myself. I know how challenging it can be. So I don't want to dismiss people. I want to give people the time. But then, like you said, it can be draining. And I know I also need to focus on my own health, my own career, my own passions, my own life. And I often, hopefully this doesn't happen, but one day if you kind of build a big enough profile, I kind of almost fear that one day because it means that I might not be able to talk to every single person that reaches out to me, if that kind of makes sense. Whereas now, you know, even if I get back to them a week or so later, I'll get back to every single person that reaches out to me, have long, deep conversations, even speak to some people I don't even know on the phone. I'll do all of that. But then I fear that one day I might not be able to. And then that poor person that's going through a challenging time, he might not be able to connect with someone. And I get it. You can't be everywhere and do everything. But for me, it's, um, it's something I'm pretty passionate about. Yeah. And as you said, you need to, you've got your own career, you need, you have your own life and so on. So that actually brings us probably to part two. Yeah. <laughs> Can we call it part yeah, two? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. No, I like it. Part two. <laughs> part two. Okay. You go part two. Um, I mean, I'll let you explain, but basically you went into remission mm-hmm. and then, I mean, cue to you. Yeah, no, it is a good point. So and look, I'm sure you might outline this in the uh, the intro, or for people to to see the episode. It's um, you know, there there is a second part to this um this story, um, you know, the testicular part, like you call it, part one, testicular cancer, big big part of my life. Um, it will always be a big part of my life. But looking back on it, it's probably the difficult, the, the more difficult times I've had has probably been the last few years. I suppose it came about when um, only a few months after I'd been given the the five-year all clear for testicular cancer. So for a lot of cancer survivors, if you've been impacted either directly or indirectly, you're probably aware when you hit the five-year mark, generally that means you're in complete remission. So for me, I had all my chemo for um, testicular cancer, follow-up big surgery to remove all my abdominal lymph nodes, went on a bit more treatment, then it was kind of just the three-month scans tick, six-month scans tick. You just go on to uh, surveillance is what they call it. I got to my five-year mark in 2018, and that's kind of when you have a final CT scan to go, yep, Hugo, things are good, no signs of cancer, and your oncologist essentially shakes your hand to say, good luck for the rest of your life. I don't need to see you again. And that's a pretty amazing moment where you kind of think, shit, the last, that's all I've known for the last five years. You know, thanks so much for everything, and you you move on. It's almost like cancer no longer defines you. Cancer is no longer a part of your life. You kind of just put that, you know, store that back in your your 20s and away you go and you look back on it years to come. Um, for me, I did that. Got the all clear. I remember celebrating with my partner, Amber. We even got a nice, you know, bottle of champagne. It was kind of one of those milestones we'll look back at with fond memories to think, how great was that? And so at this stage, it'd be great to end the podcast here. Happy days, everyone clap. <laughs> Fantastic story. But um, 
for me, <laughs> for me, uh, did, um, didn't really go to plan. Um, so that feeling I had of like normality, uh, normal young 26 year old at the time, go on, continue army career. That really only lasted about three months. Um, and it was in August, 2018 when I started to feel some stomach pains, some inconsistent bowel movements. Um, and we talked about the normal thing before. For me, it was very much, um, you know, not normal for me, if that makes sense. So you waited two weeks? <laughs> yes, yeah, two weeks. So spot on. So I, I actually did. Um, whereas looking back at my testicle, I waited over six months, right? For my bowel cancer, um, it was two weeks or so from when I acted on these symptoms. And I remember it, bowels are playing up and I thought, no, nah, this has been probably going on for two, three weeks. Booked in to see my doctor, said, yep, here's what's going on. He said, yep, no worries, we'll, we'll refer you to a gastroenterologist, which I did. He then said, yep, we'll have a colonoscopy, which if you're listening and you don't know what a colonoscopy is, essentially a camera up the bum, sees what's going on, 15-minute little nap, day procedure, pretty simple stuff. Um, had the colonoscopy, but after that he said, um, his name was Terry. Terry uh, said, mate, you've got a couple nasty-looking polyps that we found from the colonoscopy. And he's like, it's pretty unusual, especially someone who's only 26. And I even then didn't think much of it. I said, okay, no worries. I was eating my little turkey sandwich and ready to get um, get discharged from the day, day ward. Uh, and he said, look, mate, we'll see you in two weeks. Go through the results. You know, you might have a bit of inflammation or something. Um, let's talk to you then. And I remember saying, no worries. Went back to my office, happy days. Uh, remember, this was only two months, three months after I'd just been told and I had a complete CT scan that I had no cancer in my body from testicular cancer. So cancer didn't even cross my mind then because I'd, I'd just been told I had the all clear, right? Um, anyway, got the call the next day from Terry's receptionist and um, she said, hi, Hugo, we got the results back. Terry needs to see you. And I thought, yeah, no worries. I'm booked in to see him in two weeks. I remember I got my little calendar out and said, yep, I'm booked in to see him in two weeks. And she said, no, he needs to see you this afternoon. And as soon as you hear that, you genuinely know it's not great news when doctors are requesting to see you. Um, and that was like straight away. I remember where I was sitting, my office layout, everything vividly. And I had that sinking feeling in your stomach. We've all had it. That moment where like your stomach's turning and you just feel like sick, you don't have an appetite, you just feel, yeah, you feel terrible. And I called my partner up and said, Ams, um, I've got this, I need to go to the doctor this afternoon. She just finished work. She's a nurse, finished her nursing shift. She was in her nursing scrubs. I was in my army uniform, went to the, ho- went to the doctor's rooms, Terry's rooms. He called us in and, um, you know, that's when he just, said it, he didn't really beat around the bush. He turned his computer monitor around, said, mate, he's pointing to these little polyps and he said, um, so unfortunately uh, the results came back and um, you've, uh, it looks like you've got bowel cancer. And, you know, you hear those words was a completely different feeling from when I just talked about being told when I had testicular cancer because at that stage I knew a lot more about cancer. I knew bowel cancer was it's the second biggest cancer killer behind lung cancer. My whole world was just like my whole head was spinning um, and that was difficult, I suppose, fast-forwarding that whole little journey. That was difficult sitting in those rooms, 
being told you have bowel cancer three months after I'd just been cleared of testicular cancer. That's when I knew I was in for a pretty, uh, pretty full on journey. Yeah. We talked about your mental health in the first part. Like, what happened to you and how did you, how did you feel when you heard that, knowing everything that you had been through and probably imagining what was going to happen? Yeah. Look, once again, that's, that's when I, I still had a tendency to try and suppress how I was feeling. And I think that's, um, that's, that's really difficult. I think a lot of Aussie guys are particularly good at doing that. They kind of suppress their emotions. They don't express how they're feeling, whether that be through your partner, your parents, your friends. I had a sense of, um, I, I guess I feel like I put this mask on. So Yes, it was an emotional time. Yes, I remember leaving the rooms and bursting into tears. Um, hugely challenging calling my parents and, and letting them know that I'd just been told I had bowel cancer. It was all extremely emotional, but I suppose after that, I kind of just got on with it and just took the punches, if, if that makes sense. I literally just took the punch after punch after punch and just put on this, this fake smile in treatment, you know, the whole time. I just put on this fake smile, this mask, and I just didn't talk about how I was feeling emotionally and mentally. Why did you think that you 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 did that at a time of like putting this smile on and you know trying to get on with things? Um, look, I, I honestly think it was because I felt I felt enough guilt as it was, and the fact that I was putting my partner and family through pain already. And, you know, that, that was one of the hardest parts of when I called my old man, for example, and he's not like a traditionally an emotional guy. He's, you know, the type of traditional older dad who's, you know, cried once or twice in his life type of guy. And I remember telling him when I had bowel cancer, after the whole journey we went through testicular cancer, and I could hear him choke up, fight back the tears, and I started fighting back the tears and choke up. And, you know, I'm not a father myself hopefully one day I will be or can be but hearing you know your, your the pain you're causing your dad your partner knowing you know when I'd come back from work and I'd noticed that Amber had been crying and she would try to fight back the tears and you know you're causing other people pain and you have that sense of guilt that they're going through this with you and that's that's exactly that cancer doesn't just impact the individual it impacts families, friends, colleagues, partners, kids, parents, everything. And being the person going through that, you do have that sense of guilt for putting everyone through that. So for me, masking the whole mental health side of things and pretending, which I was, that I was fine and, you know, I had this big surgery coming up, oh, he'll be fine. And my mum would always say, I don't know how you're so bloody positive and you're so brave. And I'd say, no, you know, it is what it is. And you just have that sense of, putting on that act because you wanted to make them feel like they didn't have to then worry about you. Because imagine if I was like, yeah, mum, I'm shit, which I'm sure she wouldn't have cared and I probably should have said that, but I looked at going, imagine if I said, mum, I'm petrified of this surgery tomorrow. I don't know what to do. I'm so scared and just crying and blah, blah, blah. I feel like I'd be another burden on my mum or my partner. So I guess I was that optimistic Hugo that everyone knew me for. Um, and even today, people know me for being the optimistic guy, which for a large part I am, but I've also got a very vulnerable side to me that I don't always have this 
this front. I do have definitely behind the scenes, which I'm getting better at expressing and my partner seeing more of that. I'm definitely not that type of guy. I'm, I'm a pretty emotional, vulnerable guy like a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. So one of the one of the way that you talk about that story of the part two, um, and I think you, you, you probably explained it, but apparently one day a doctor told you that your testicular cancer probably saved you from that second can- cancer. Why do you say that? Yeah, so when I we talk about the the two weeks and and going off to get checked if something isn't right, when I went to go and get checked, you know, my bowels weren't that bad, really. It's not like I was shitting blood or I couldn't get out of bed. I was in so much pain. They really weren't that bad, but they would I knew it wasn't normal or my normal. And bowel cancer is a killer if it spreads beyond the bowel. It's not great. Early detection is so vital for, for something like bowel cancer. And so my doctor did say to me one uh, in one of our appointments, he said in a, in a strange kind of way um, that the only silver lining here, Hugo, is that you've got it just at the right time before it's had a chance to really spread beyond the bowel. You've just got it at the right time. We've got to act now. We've got to have the surgeries, which we did, and remove chunks of my bowel. It was a difficult couple of years, don't get me wrong, but we got it at the, as early as we could have. Um, and he said in, in that strange type of way, your testicular cancer saved your life for bowel cancer because if I never got testicular cancer, there's every chance I wouldn't have gone to the doctor when I did for my bowel cancer. And I probably was always going to get bowel cancer if you know you you believe in the whole concept of why I got it, and it was you know it's I couldn't help getting it if that makes sense. If I lived the same life as I did, I was always going to get bowel cancer. But if I didn't have the testicular cancer, I may have not gone to the doctor for another six months plus until I was shitting blood and I was in significant pain. At that stage, you know things may have been too late. So I often look back at that and think that's kind of pretty powerful to think I'm probably here today because of testicular cancer saving my life, which is pretty uh, strange thing to say. I love the fact that your message not only starts with, well, you know, to avoid having testicular cancer, just check yourself, mate. Like Mm. it's, it's a great message. Like you've got a story and you're using your voice to increase awareness about just simple stuff like going in the shower and checking and make sure that everything looks normal. But then like, the second part of your story is even more interesting slash impressive is the fact that you like early detection can save your life and it has saved my life. And I think you're talking in your message around the fact that in Australia, guys are particularly bad at going to the doctor, right? Like I've looked stats up, like I can give, like there was a very stat that really amused me in a sad way is that in, it was in the US, but I think it can definitely relate to Australia. 75% of men that were um, interviewed said that they would rather do chores like cleaning up toilets than going to a doctor. And like 60 something percent will actually do everything they can to avoid going to a doctor. Crazy. Why, why is that so that in Australia, we, there is such a huge medical gender gap? Yeah. Look, I, I put it down to the, 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 what we have been brought up as young guys, right? That's what I put it down to because, you know, think about I remember getting brought up with the whole concept of 
it's um, you don't cry, men don't cry. You, you've heard that saying, right? Men don't cry. Of course. Yet, why is it when you're a baby you cry? In your early vulnerable years as a kid, you cry. And when you cry, it's because something's often not right. You get nurtured. Your mum or your dad nurture you, and and then you stop crying. But then when you get older, it's kind of like, nope, crying's bloody not manly. You need to be tough. You need to be strong. You know, you can't express your emotions and talk how you know how you feel. Like you, you're a, you're a man. You need to be the the provider of the family. And that's that old school thinking, which is starting to change. Still got a long way to go. But that old school thinking about men being that that stoic provider, that figure that you know they don't get sick, they're invincible, they're bulletproof. You know, you know they they can't go to a doctor or they can't show any signs of vulnerability. Can that like that that whole concept? I think is the reason why a lot of men don't. They have this this thought or this kind of perception in their head that if they go to a doctor, it's kind of a sign of weakness. It's kind of like I don't need to go off to a doctor, and they just they they put it off to say no, and they they almost um, brag about it. I still hear it today when you hear people saying oh, I haven't been to a doctor for ten years, and you know I haven't I haven't been sick for the last few years. I've never been to a hospital, and they they almost use it as a sense of pride to say yeah, look at me, and it's that those conversations which are the reasons blokes don't have annual checkups or don't go to a doctor because they think that it's it's not a, a I guess a manly thing to do. Um, and also I think the fear, I think some men in particular have the attitude of they'd rather not know if something is wrong. It's almost the strange thing to say that, well, if I did have cancer by not going to the doctor and not being told I've got cancer, it won't make it real. And they kind of just continue to put it off. That is also a thing I've come across when people, if it's almost like they've got symptoms, but they're scared to be told if it is serious. So then they just don't go to the doctor. But then it's just like, hang on, but if it is serious, what are you doing? You can get onto it now and then it won't be life-threatening or it won't be serious. Um, so they're the, the fundamental reasons why I think, in Australia especially, men seem to be notoriously bad about expressing their emotions and looking after themselves in the form of going to a doctor and getting checked. Yeah. When I, when I was thinking about this, preparing for the, this episode, I was thinking about, okay, so I'm a woman and this is my experience going to the doctor and I was reading about all these men going or not going to the doctor and I was like, why is this, there is such a difference, right? Because I'm very interested into gender norms, gender stereotypes, but I was like, it still doesn't really make sense there is such a huge gap. But then something kind of popped in my head. I was like, hang on a second. When you are a child, you go to the doctor usually with your mother or your dad, mostly with your mom. And then, you know, you kind of like forced to go, right? You, you don't have a, a say. And then if you're sick, obviously your parents will bring you to the doctor. And then when you're actually old enough to almost make your own decision, like 20s and stuff, um, when you're women, this is actually around the time or even younger that you start going to your gynecologist. So you actually get into the mentality, oh, I need to get checked anyway. Mm. So you go into that routine of going to that doctor and getting checked. And also, you know, as a woman, going to the gynecologist is not fun. Like we talk about getting, you know, your experience of going and getting checked. But from a yearly young age, even probably before you've got a 
partner, mm. someone's already looking down there. Oh, it's mm. vulnerable for sure. Exactly. So I think we're already in that mindset of like, oh yeah, well, that's what I have to do. And then if you imagine someone getting pregnant, how many freaking doctors and nurses do mm. you actually see? Whereas I was thinking was that as a man, you can actually go 30 years without seeing any medical yeah, person. Very true. So... So that's why, like, I had a bit of a revelation when I thought about that. I was like, well, that makes sense that mm. there's such a big gap between my mentality and when I talk to my partner that actually it's like fights in our household. Yeah. And the, the whole concept, like you're touching on, you know, the, the whole concept of going to a doctor only because you're really unwell or something's really wrong, like that, that whole concept needs to be scrapped. It needs to change that to say instead of just going to a doctor when you're not well, which absolutely still do that, why don't you still have annual checkups, right? Exactly. Like why why don't you still have an annual checkup where you can go in because not every cancer, for example, and obviously I'm cancer's close to me, not every cancer shows symptoms either. Not every cancer shows symptoms. So why can't you just have annual checkups at your doctor where you have your five-minute skin check. They check for moles and freckles. You know, melanoma is Australia's cancer, right? Why can't they have five five-minute checkup doing that? You know, check your blood pressure levels, have a what's called a full blood count where they take some blood, send it off, which tests a few things like iron levels and inflammation markers, and you have this annual checkup, all done with your doctor. You know who your doctor is. They say, thanks for coming, and, you know, I'll let you know if I need to see you again. Otherwise, we'll, we'll touch base again in a year's time. Like that concept, if everyone did that, imagine how many lives would be saved through either early detection or for for men especially because we keep talking about men being comfortable enough to booking in to see their GP if something is wrong. And um, that's something I'm a big driver to try and push and I bring my mates up with it all the time. I say, when did you last see your doctor? Uh, I can't remember, maybe since I was a kid. I go, well, how about you – use this men's health week or use this month or use me as a, a push or a motive to, to go see a doctor. And my twin brother was great because we're twins, right? And he thought, shit, my twin brother's gone through all this stuff. Maybe I should go off. And to his credit, he had a colonoscopy due to the whole, you know, can the family, you can run in the family. He had a colonoscopy, saw his doctor, had all the checks done, all the tests done, had everything good to go. Fortunately, clean bill of health, fantastic. But he said it was almost a relief walking out and like a sense of accomplishment, walking out of the doctor's rooms, clean bill of health, you almost feel like, you know, you feel great for, for doing it. And then he knows who his GP is now. I'm sure he'll book in again for a year's time. And all of a sudden he's you're almost 30. And for the, hopefully the rest of his life, he'll have that same mentality of getting checked and getting looked after or, you know, um, reaching out to your GP if you need yeah. to. So I'd love everyone to to have that, if, if you're listening, type of, moments that you don't have to be my twin brother to be proactive and book into your GP. Anyone and everyone should be doing that at least annually to have that checkup. Yeah. And I, and I would say on that note, one of the things that I read um, of like the campaigns that they were trying to run or the advice they were giving is like, there was one part that almost annoyed me is they were saying um, as a partner and usually the, you know, the the cliche um, straight couple of heterosexual, it's like, oh yeah, uh, as a partner, a female partner, then it's fine if you have to book for your partner, like go and book the appointment video. And it happens so often, but like my, my thinking, I was like, well, 
women already have so much on their plate. If you have kids, you already have to bring, like, why do they have to put this on their plate again? Like, it is something that is not that hard. When I think about a lot of different gender, gender stereotypes, even mental health, I feel like the barriers to actually close the medical gender gap are so tiny. Mm. It's literally what you said, booking an appointment yourself and not asking for your partner to do it yeah, because of you. I know, exactly. And, you know, that being said, the partners can be a useful tool in encouraging. I think, um, you know, if there are partners, females listening to this right now and you think actually my partner's buddy, you know, been bad at this, encourage them to go. Um, I think if you can relate to someone or have a sense of um, connection to a story, it's a, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's good. I like my twin brother. So I think for me, I'm just a normal, typical 29-year-old army guy who's got no family history history of cancer. Um, you know, n- nothing's – I've got no abnormalities in my genes. For the most part, I'm just a normal guy, right, mm. that's been through a couple of these bouts of cancer. So when I share my story or give presentations, quite often men in the crowd or audience or listening to this can kind of go, he's not too dissimilar to me actually. Um, shit, actually maybe I should go to a doctor if that makes sense. So hopefully anyway, it's it's a prompter for um, for, for guys to realise they're not invincible, right? I've got something that could help as a metaphor that I thought was amazing because that's exactly your message is saying that you need to have regular checkups in your 20s and your 30s because – you know, that's not something that you think about because you're you're the healthiest. But the metaphor is like, think of health like your car. Even when it's new, shiny and running fine, it is important to take it in for service to prevent damage down the road. Love, right. love that. I love it. And it's it's actually, it, I've, it's funny you mentioned that. I spoke to someone the other day and it popped into my head and I used a similar car metaphor, not that one, but the similar concept because I just got my car serviced and it cost a shitload of money, but I got it serviced because it was the right thing to do. And I spent a lot of money on this car, but it was driving fine. It felt good. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with it. I got it serviced and the mechanic goes, oh, mate, you know, the oil, you need to make sure you look after that a bit better. There's a few little issues with the wheel alignment. So we still fixed up a few things because it wasn't perfect, right? No one's perfect. But I think it's a it's a great metaphor and a great analogy for, for guys listening especially who are driving in their car. And I bet you... People have take more pride in their car than they do in many respects their body as far as what they're putting into their body, not going to get it serviced, i.e. go to a GP once a year. They probably do all the right things for their car, put the premium fuel in, go to a mechanic once a year, change the tires when you need to change it because it's the safe thing and the right thing to do. I like it, Cece. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good go. metaphor. So can we say, we're going to launch a new campaign, can we say <laughs> when you get your car serviced, you need to book at your GB? I like that. It's, it's, it's a good prompter. I think we, right? could, we could be onto something there. I think we're human and we need cues, we need reminders and, you know, we have a ton of things to do and we tend to forget and especially things we don't want to do. So if we could have the cue that if you book servo, if you book at your garage for a service, you book at the doctor. I for like a that because typically you're right. It's usually around a year or so when you book in for a service. Mind you, if you're one of those guys that don't look after your car and you don't book in for services, don't go, oh, well, I'm off the hook. <laughs> uh, but no, for the most part, CC, I like that, man. We should, uh, yeah, we should really do something with that. I think it's partner with garage, <laughs> <laughs> like service. Ultra Tune or so. I like even Ultra Tune. Yeah. Partner with them about a men's health campaign with Ultratune and 
cars. We'll talk offline. We'll talk, we'll talk offline. <laughs> exactly. Guys, stay tuned. Uh, no, but I love what you said. It's like just we need it's simple and we just need to make it happen and change and change mindsets. But so on that note, um, apart from creating this amazing campaign, how do you think that we can change this? And I know that you this is almost like your daily life trying to like but what can we do realistically to change things in Australia? Look, it is my daily struggle uh, because it honestly is. You, I feel like I push so hard for these messages and, and speak to amazing people like yourself who are generating these conversations through podcasts or whatever it might be. But ultimately, you know, I don't do it for a pat on the back or, a, you know, oh, you're so inspiring. You've been through so much. You know, I do it to, like you said, implement change and actually have a, a tangible outcome to know that, the reasons why I'm doing this is actually potentially saving lives. Um, to to know or to to do that well is is tough, and I know that purely because you look at something like bowel cancer, right? When you turn 50, you get a free bowel screening kit in the mail when you turn 50 in Australia. Free screening kit. Government sends it to you. Happy 50th. Here's a screening kit for bowel cancer. This screening kit has a little brush. You brush your poo, send it back in a paid reply envelope, very easy process, very simple thing to do, and that will essentially pick up any microscopic blood in your um, stools and prompt you to go see a gastroenterologist, have a colonoscopy if you need to. Point is, how many people do you think or the percentage of those take that screening kit? Remember, it's free. It's all paid for. It's delivered to your door. Bowel cancer, the second biggest cancer killer behind lung cancer, You've got it all there ready to go. How many people do you think take that? I'm going to be very pessimistic. I'm going to say 5%. So it's a bit more than 5%, but it's only just more. It's just over 20% oh, actually okay. take this. You know, and it probably was 5%. It may have come a little way, but if you think about it, bowel cancer is 99% curable if detected early. 99% curable if detected early. Like it's you. Correct. And fortunately, grateful here today. Yet it's Australia's second biggest cancer killer because people aren't detecting it early. The statistics increase when you turn 50, hence why you get this free screening kit. But there are 70 to 80% of Australians who don't even take the kit. So we're trying to encourage people to go to see their doctor, yet here's a kit on their doorstep that they can take in their own comfort, their own home, in their own privacy, their bathroom, and 70 to 80% of people Australia-wide over 50 aren't doing it. And so they're, they're the challenges you have to think, well, if people aren't even doing that, what's my hope on getting younger people to go to book into their GP? And then if I can't encourage, you know, my mates to do it, how am I going to encourage, you know, so it, it is a challenge and I guess um, it motivates me because it's a, it's a challenge I want to try and fix. But I think by doing these types of talks, um, these podcasts, having these conversations, we can slowly create that ripple effect. And I'm a big one for, for having something, a, a tangible task or something for someone to do. So a prime example, listening to this podcast today, instead of listening to this podcast going, wow, that latest episode from CC was really great. That guy had been through a bit and well, that was a really cool podcast. Then continue on with your daily life, actually having a couple like tangible things for the listeners to do. I think that's important and that's something I try and do in my presentations. Instead of giving a presentation, I'll get, you know, everyone in the crowd to pull their phone out um, to, you know, 
type a text message for them and click send mm-hmm. and that might, you know, open themselves up, be vulnerable and people are laughing, people are getting reply messages, but it's getting them to do something. Or, you know, I talk about the feeling you're nuts. I'll kind of say, you know, tonight lying in bed thinking of me, thinking of this presentation sounds a bit sexual, right? I love it. But even that gets a few laughs, gets them to check their nuts. And I know for a fact that is working because I get people saying, hey, check my nuts tonight, thanks very much, or hey, I reached out to a mate I haven't spoken to in a while. Um, So on that, we can make the ripple effect here. A couple maybe, few couple things we can end with that your listeners can actually do. Let's go. So we can brainstorm. I think the first one, if you've got a larger male audience, is the checking your testicles. I think that's an easy one. And you can do it now because probably you're, you know, in... A very like and not public. Do not do it in a public space, please. Should we put on the uh, different Um, voices for this? I can definitely (laughs) do that. We'll walk you through it. Get your right hand, pull your pen. Now that's getting a little bit sexual, but I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, check your testicles. So either right now, like you said, CC, have a feel around. Only we get a little time under your zip. There it goes. Cup your testicles. Have a feel around. You guys demonstrating right now, guys. I know. I am. Left testicle. I've got pants on though, just so it's not too uncomfortable. Left testicle, right testicle. Have a feel around. Does everything feel all right? Learn to know what your normal is. Any bumps? No bumps. You can do that right now. Or tonight, promise to us that you, after the shower, in the shower, around shower time, we all shower every day, hopefully, feel those testicles. And if you're a female listening to this, do a similar thing for your breasts. Mm-hmm. Just feel around the breast, the armpit area, feel for any lumps, anything that feels unusual around the armpit area and the breasts. Women can be doing that too. There's one thing that potentially if one male listening to this right now does that, we're creating that little ripple effect. One person's done it. That's an amazing message. There's and if one we message. can continue on the whole like car thing, yep. if you can't remember to do it on the shower, at least every time you put fuel in your car, Think about checking your own engine. Just not feeling your testicles at the service station. No, no, you wait until you're in the car, guys. Come on, you car. can do this. We don't, want, we, we don't want to be done for um, indecent, public indecent exposure. But, uh, yeah, I like the prompt of the reminders are a good one. And then maybe the second message, which will touch on your metaphor. Yeah. When you have got a service coming up due for your car. Or a rego. Regos every year. See, Red Joe's a good one. We're good, we're good, we're good. We're See, do something. we're brainstorming here. You guys are helping us brainstorm without even knowing. But that's a good second one. If you've got something to select, let's call it the Red Joe. We've just, we've evolved, we've pivoted. It's good. The Red Joe. When your Red Joe comes in next, you get the Red Joe on the mail, put it on the fridge, Red Joe's due in two months. When you pay that Red Joe or when you've got that Red Joe due, you also need to book in to see your GP. Exactly. And sometimes it's even free, guys. Come on, remove the excuse of like it cost, whatever. You're going to spend uh, that money next weekend that, anyway. That, that, that's it. That annoys me so much when people say, I don't want to spend money on the GP if I'm feeling fine. It's like, are you kidding? You'll happily go spend 200 bucks at the bloody, you know, bar or dinner or, you know, buy a new bloody shirt or whatever, yet you're not going to put that little bit of money into your own potential future livelihood, right? Anyway, yeah. that I hate when people say that. You hear it so often, though. Yeah, they go, oh, but it costs money, blah, blah. Anyway, so there are two <laughs> takeaways, which hopefully, like I said, even if you get a few people do that, that's heading in the right direction. That's what we need to encourage men especially to do, noting that this is Men's Health Week. 
we need to enact, we need to have, we need to do, we need to do these things that they don't have these men's health week for a reason. Yeah. You know, you look at the statistics and suicide every single day in Australia, it's now bumped up to nine people every single day, nine people and their own life. Seven of those nine are men. So if you think about that, but that's alarming statistics that every single day, nine people, seven of whom are men and their own lives. And those statistics are only increasing. Last year it was eight. Now we're sitting at nine. So you think about that type of stuff. So there's a reason we're talking about this stuff today. There's a reason Men's Health Week exists. It's because as guys, we need to put it on ourselves to have these conversations and to be proactive yeah. and look after yourself and go to your doctor and talk about how you're feeling if you're struggling. Exactly, because as you mentioned, everything that you mentioned, whether it's suicide or cancer, we know that those are preventable, either by surrounding yourself and talking about how you're feeling or just going to the GP. And obviously going to the GP sounds to me a lot easier than actually reaching out to your men and saying, I'm not okay, but it is still very, very important. But to kind of wrap it up as well, one thing that I personally feel that would be a huge impact on changing those stigmas and those stoic masculine stereotypes that we have in Australia is to have guys like you just talking about the health with their mates, with their brother, with their their father, or even like just female around them mm-hmm. and just making sure that you talk openly about what you've been through because that will open up conversations. And I'm sure that it's going to have a huge ripple effect down the line. Absolutely, Cece, spot on. And, and even to plug the podcast, maybe if you're listening to this episode and you got something out of it and you like the two little messages or the, the take-homes for Men's Health Week, Maybe share this episode with a friend, like exactly. you said, with your dad, your brother, someone for Men's Health Week. Say, hey, listen to this episode. Listen to a guy called Hugo. CC does this great podcast asking for a mate. Share this episode and maybe that will create the ripple mm-hmm. effect. And then your old man listens to it and goes, I like that car metaphor. And all of a sudden he's booking him to see his GP. You just never know. So maybe that can be the third and final Kind of helping plug you here, Cece. Thank you very much, Hugo. And you know what? I'm going to be sharing that episode with my dad. So, Dad, if you're listening to this, I hope that you already have your phone and that you already have booked with your GP. (laughs) Thank you so much, Hugo. Um, You're turning 30. Mm. I turned 30 last year. What's your objective or your the thing that you're looking the most towards being 30? Um. Well, weekend away in Byron Bay with my twin and a few mates for our 30th. That'll be pretty good. That's going to be great. But in general, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to getting in my 30s because I feel like it's an exciting decade ahead for me. You know, I look at my 20s, basically from 21 to 29 where I am today, it's been seven, eight years of a lot going on with my health, a lot sort of to process, and I feel like it's been a difficult time in my 20s although I've got some great memories thrown through there and I'm you know met my partner and etc etc but my 30s I'd love to think that it will be a completely new decade lots of exciting things I'm going to be cancer free for the next 10 plus years so I'm really looking forward to getting into a new decade getting into my 30s and 
and just kind of I don't know living a living a good life. So I'm pretty excited for it, which is good. Yeah. Well, I wish you obviously in your 30th to be as cancer free and healthy as possible. But I've got to say, you know, when you when you reach 30, usually you look back and like, what have I achieved in my in my 20s? And I have I have I achieved enough? Then although for you it meant having two cancers, I feel like you've achieved so fucking much. And I'm humbled by everything you've done. I think your message is freaking powerful. And I want to thank you for everything you're doing for Australia, for men, also for coming on this podcast and making sure that you give again your time and supporting people through that. So thank you so very much and happy birthday. Thank you, Cece. I've got little goosebumps hearing you say that, but thanks so much for having me on today. this episode of asking for a mate please don't forget to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast thank you so much for listening and guys please remember to always go beyond the small talk because it feels great to talk 